from a time in the medieval period when only the clergy had a reading and writing kind of education because nobody else needed it. No, there were no books. People weren't reading or writing things. Um, you know, in England, the great um, amazement about Queen Elizabeth I being so literate and able to read and write, or even her, hus- her husband, her father, Henry VIII, writing poetry. This was a real breakthrough that the upper classes could be bothered to read and write, not just have a scribe trained who could do their reading and writing for them. You say, Colin? <laughs> you know, for me, you're in the future. Like, uh, like a man on the moon or in a tin pan. Welcome to the Eat Radio Podcast. And here's your host, Colin Pope from Eat Magazine. Good morning, and thanks for joining me this morning. It's uh, oddly enough, I've arrived. I've just come from Central Station in Sydney, and and I arrived at three quarters past nine at Platform Nine. The weather's kind of uh, mystery, a bit of a wintry kind of a feel to the day here. Unusual for Sydney, of course, but you can get those days. And and so I've made it here from the station. And I'm on the steps of the University of Sydney. I'm standing under an archway. It looks and feels like a trip to the Ministry of Magic. And to the left of me, I can see a huge chamber that oddly looks like it holds, among other things, a number of secrets. And I'm about to introduce you to somebody, someone who can really conjure up a sense of place as to exactly where we are. It's Cullen here from the Eat Magazine podcast, and I'm at Sydney University with Fran Keeling. And uh, we're here on the most glorious day. We are in the middle of the main quad. Mm -hmm. Do you want to just uh, tell us a little about a bit about your place here, Fran? Because I know that you do a lot here. I do a lot of strange things here, yes. Um, I am an archaeologist by profession. Um, my area of expertise is uh, ancient Greece and Rome and their neighbours. I teach a bit here in the university in archaeology and also in ancient history. And I work for university museums, which is why I'm taking you around today, um, looking at the historical fabric of the university. Brilliant. And this, the quad that we're in at the moment, I guess when we're looking out there, we can majestically see the city. Mm. And yet when we talk about this design, how would you explain the way that this has been, I guess, put together to give these 
incredible aspects. You're talking about the Harry Potter aspects right. of the quad, yes. Um, you wouldn't be the first to point that out to us. Um, we're the oldest university in Australia, um, but we're not really very old. We were proclaimed in 1850, so we're very, very young in comparison to the great universities of Europe and your Oxfords and your Cambridges, even the great um, early universities of the New World like Harvard or Yale. Um, we're only um, since 1850, as I've said. Um, so there is a sense that using an ancient style, a style that harks back to Harry Potter and Oxford and Cambridge, um, is a way of attaching, the university attaching itself to that really long history of British scholarship. And remember in the 1850s when the university was being put together, um, British scholarship, people felt very British, people referred to uh, Britain as home, even if they'd never been there. Where are you going? Oh, we're getting the ship, we're going home. Um, so harking back to this sort of Gothic style is a way of mentally um, attaching oneself to that history of British scholarship. But the building grew up in lots of stages as a thousand-year-old university would have um, around a cathedral or a monastery, another place of learning. Um, and it's this run of buildings across here on the east side of the quadrangle was the first structure which was begun in 1850. And then the Great Hall that we're going to have a look in at in a little while is uh, 1855 it was proclaimed. Then this side over here on the southwest with the copper roof was the original Fisher Library. And that's what that pointy thing is on the top. It's called a flesh, an arrow, or sometimes a lantern. And that was a way of bringing light into the center of the building. Because when it was a library, there was no uh, gas or electricity here, obviously. It was whale oil lamps used for lighting. Books and open flames are not a very good combination. And so the attempt was to make that room as bright and light as possible so that people didn't have to use artificial lighting and risk fire. Um, but the rest of the square, if you look on the top of the drain pipes over here, I don't know if you can see the copper oh, drain yes. pipes, 1925, 1924. So all of this corner here wasn't filled in till the 1920s. And this little bit over here again to complete the square in the 1920s. And in fact, the front of the Western Tower here wasn't completed until the 1960s. When the sun's on it better, you can tell that the stone there is a very much more orange color than the rest of the building. The rest of the building was made from locally quarried sandstone, but by the 1960s, the area was so built up that that sandstone was no longer accessible. And so this is brought down from the central coast. This is Gosford sandstone. So just by using your eyes, I bring my first year archaeology students in here sometimes, just by using your eyes, even if you don't know what has happened, you know something's happened because you can see the changes in sizes of the blocks, you can see the changes in the roofing materials, you can see the changes in the colour of the stone. So these are all indicators of the way that this is sort of accreted over time. Um, so I think that's actually quite interesting. And it is of course the way a university would have grown a thousand years ago, but it's happened much more rapidly than that. That's right, and I guess, I suppose that um, when you talk about that, I guess, 
history of universities in terms of when we go back in time we talk about those early uh, universities that were built around monasteries, they were built around places of learning as well. There was a whole uh, kind of philosophy around that in a sense, wasn't there? Oh, absolutely. And and from a time um, in the medieval period when only the clergy had a reading and writing kind of education because nobody else needed it. No, There were no books, people weren't reading or writing things. Um, you know, in England, the great um, amazement about Queen Elizabeth I being so literate and able to read and write, or even her, hus- her husband, her father, Henry VIII, writing poetry. This was a real breakthrough that the upper classes could be bothered to read and write, not just have a scribe trained who could do their reading and writing for them. Um, so that's why these places of learning grew up around places of religion because priests and monks needed to be able to read holy books and so they had a reading and writing education yes and so i'm guessing that in actual fact a lot of those early scribes would have come from the church and so the church would have had a great absolutely trained by the church um if not actually having taken orders absolutely absolutely i mean just until i think 20th century um if you were a fellow of a college at Oxford or Cambridge, you had to be a, a minister. You had to be ordained. Um, and it was even you know, quite frowned upon to be married. Um, again, harking back to this old idea of the unmarried clergy, the priestly scribe idea. Absolutely. Okay. And so I guess really when we look at uh, that, when we look at that movement, that great movement in terms of, I guess, really the first books were the beginning of this movement Mm -hmm. to read as opposed to just having a a small group of people that were able to write and able to read. Is that right? I think it probably happened more when you get on a little further and particularly in the Reformation when... Um, people, Martin Luther's the classic example, but when people started to want to publish the Bible in the Vulgate or in the language of the country that they were in, um, then it was the idea of giving the people access to the Word of God without having to have recourse to a priest, that it was a direct access rather than via the intervention of somebody official. Um, And I think that's probably more when when the general reading and writing, because there was the opportunity to read the Bible, um, which would have inspired a lot of people to actually be literate. Brilliant. Okay, great. And so we're looking out across here, across the the quadrangle, and and we can see people very relaxed, lying in the sun. They've got their laptops there, and they I'm not sure if they're studying, but they look like they're trying to or pretending to, but they look very, very comfortable as if they've, they've been here for a long time as well, but I'm guessing they haven't. sandstone that I spoke to you about is fantastic for carving. It's soft um, and it's easy to carve but being soft also means it's very vulnerable to weather and to pollution. This is the old lion, the British lion, that used to be on the top of the um, Eastern Tower but as you can see, well your listeners can't see but you can see, he's lost his little fingers, he's got bits dropping off him all the time, uh, all everywhere. So what we did, he was brought down and he's been copied 
And so the lion that's up there now is a new version, um, and we brought him in here to be protected. Um, so if any archaeologist in a couple of thousand years is excavating here, they might be a bit confused by the one up top, because they'll be able to tell, if they know about modern tools, that this was made using old-fashioned hand tools, but that the one up on the roof was made using modern mechanised tools. Um, so they might wonder why. Hopefully they're clever enough to work it out. <laughs> Fantastic. He's, he's Great. Really sweet. Yeah. Um, and we go in through here. I'm not sure if there's something happening in here. You never know. But I think... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Probably not. Wow, that's tremendous. <laughs> Nobody could afford to have a door that's two and a half inches thick yeah. <laughs> nowadays. This was the robing room. This is where the academics would prepare for procession. All of these cupboards over here, each person would have had his own little, each professor would have had his own um, cubby hole to keep his cap and gown and various bits and pieces done. We can look out here as well. We're out at the front um, on the eastern elevation. If you look up, um, if this were really a thousand year old building, all of these little um, grotesques, people would call them gargoyles. To really be a gargoyle, you have to be involved in the roof plumbing. You have to have water coming out of your mouth or your ears or somewhere unpleasant. Um, so the ones that aren't in the plumbing are grotesques. Um, and in a thousand-year-old university, they would have had a function. They were to uh, repel um, bad spirits by being scary and evil. We've all seen The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, but of course, in 1850, when the stonemasons were doing this work, um, that evil spirit idea had kind of lived its usefulness, or outlived its usefulness. So a lot of these grotesques now are actually jokes. I don't know if you can see right up the top there, can you see the kangaroo oh, silhouetted yeah. against <laughs> yeah. the sunlight? Yeah. And there's lots of funny little, um, yeah, they're, they're funny rather than being terrifying. Um, and apparently the stonemasons um, were able to propose their own designs for various things. So they're all quite idiosyncratic. Um, and they look like they've, they had a lot of fun. There's, there's yeah. quite a bit of personality yeah, in some of these. A lot of personality, that's what I'd say. And, and I guess they reflect the um, personalities of the stonemasons themselves. There's a monkey over there with his tail in his mouth that I really find utterly hilarious. But yes, the kangaroo up the top is um, very amusing. Apparently there's a wombat somewhere. I've never been able to find it. Um, and a platypus somewhere. But again, if anybody ever finds them, they could let me know because I'd really like to know where they are. But okay, brilliant. Thank you. Find. And if you look back, you can actually see when the land was given to the university, we had this block that went right down to the end of the park there. And there's a fantastic little cafe down there at the end of the park, but it used to be the coach um, house, the gate house. And so the original entry to the university would be straight up that path through the park and up here. Um, but we did a land swap with the city of Sydney at one point, and we gave them that area that's now the park, and they gave us 
more land going in the south so that we could spread that way. So we now, and we spread as far as you can, the eye can see, we spread now. Um, but yes, that, and they've only just recent, well, recently, maybe in the last 10 years, reinstituted that straight path to give back the old perspective that you would have had when you came up to the, the front of the building here. But there he is, let's go and grab him before he gets away from us. Wasn't that fantastic? Thanks for coming on that stroll uh, with me. Fran has been very generous in her description of how so many of these traditions have added to uh, really the whole design and layout of the university. And there's so, so much here to see and so much to do. You can tell I'm losing my voice, of course, between podcasts. And um, it's been it's been an amazing an amazing trip uh, throughout Sydney as we've been putting this program together. And and I'm really excited to um, to tell you we're heading into the Great Hall. And so uh, there's been some arrangements made for all of that. And um, and I think you'll really. Uh, get a picture of I, I guess really the sort of internal mechanisms that help to uh, kind of pull all of this together in in so many different ways and I'm really excited about uh, the trip into the Great Hall I think I'll probably have to go and get myself a hot toddy uh, at this point in time and um, I look forward to catching you next time as we make our way in the Great Hall. Cheers. Mm-hmm.